Hello, lovely people. How are you today? I do hope you're doing okay. Now, here's another first for this podcast a vet and a reverend. Not only that, a vet and a reverend rolled into one. I know. When a careers advisor told Reverend Jenny McKay she'd never be a vet, well, there was her mission to prove them wrong. In fact, Jenny has found her own way in life in pretty much everything she's done. When a diagnosis in her 40s made her think she needed something else in life, a lot of work and searching took her to becoming a reverend. If you think that was the end of Jenny being a vet, well, think again. Reverend Jenny McKay's story is full of passion, honesty, courage and making your life your own. And yes, she does wear her dog collar to work. I've never met a Reverend Vet before and I love this conversation with Jenny about animals, life and the universe. I really hope you'll enjoy it too. Hello and welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapter in the hope it might help you with your next chapter. Or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Reverend Jenny McKay. So Reverend Jenny McKay, welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. What an honour it is to have you with me. Thank you so much. I'm very pleased to be here, Ellie. <laughs> wow. I mean, this is a first for me. It absolutely is. And I can't wait. I saw your story in a magazine. Just, I just, I saw it. I saw the title of it. And I was like, oh my goodness, she has to come on the next chapter podcast. <laughs> so thank you so much for saying yes when you got my strange message. So Jenny, we start as ever. And you don't mind that I call you Jenny. Are you sure that's okay? That is absolutely fine. <laughs> okay. Fabulous. Fabulous. I feel I should call you Reverend, but I'll call you Jenny. So we start as ever with your prologue. Now, you grew up near Belfast. I did. I was born near Belfast um, and my home as a child was in a town called Carnmoney. So about 12 miles north of Belfast. And then when I was 11 years old, we moved to the countryside to a little market town called Ballyclare. Yeah which is actually where my father was head of music in the local grammar school. Okay. Because you said this, you said, because um, you're an only child, you said actually you had quite, you described your parents as churchy, that they were very supportive of your schoolwork. And in fact, because your dad was a music teacher, he really encouraged you to play instruments. He did. He did. We have photos, actually, of me sitting at his feet when he's playing the piano and I was just one or two years of wow. age. So I was really, really brought up in music and um, they encouraged me to play, play the piano. Um, and I did quite well in that. I got up to grade seven. Oh, well done. <laughs> and then I, um, I learned a violin as well. I wasn't as keen on the violin. I always wanted actually to play the flute. Right. Um, but they wanted me to play the violin. So that was an okay. instrument I was never very keen on myself. Mm. And I did eventually get to learn the flute when I was 14. So did I you? did Good. manage to and did you, do it. And was it worth the wait? Yes, it was definitely. I loved it. I should have taken it up earlier. Okay. Okay, but, but you, all these amazing. all these require a lot of um, practice, don't they? they and do. uh, sadly, as exams, you know, got more difficult in school. If I did O levels and A levels in those days, then I didn't really have much time to practice every day. Okay. So I wasn't there. Uh, Is that why then you stopped the piano? Did you? 
I did get back onto the piano um, again a little bit at university. Um, but yeah, to be fair, I, I didn't play regularly enough to be much good. I'm sure so, you're very good. Um... If you got to grade seven, <laughs> you were very good. Um, and because obviously you were a very, you know, you were a very studious student, weren't you? Very, very studious. I was very, very much encouraged to study, um, almost to the point that I was very envious of my friends being able to go out and about at weekends and out in the evening and I was studying away in, in my books. I liked it though. I really, really liked study. I mean, even as a little girl, when I was at primary school, I used to come home and do my own school, Jennifer's oh school. Wow. I know. I know when I look back on it, you know, I'd come home in the afternoon and then I'd do another two or three hours in my own school. <laughs> now look, that is amazing. <laughs> I did like study. I did like study. I have two little boys. I've just picked one of them up from school and I can tell you they are not upstairs doing a, a little <laughs> school of their own. So I'm going to tell them that after I finish recording this. And you're an inspiration. But did you enjoy, were you more science-based or did you enjoy all subjects at school? I liked the arts, music, actually, wow. and languages. Okay. So I wanted to be a famous ballerina, I've got to say, up until I was about 15. So I did go to dance classes. Okay. And, you know, then I realised, you know, I'm not going to be anything special at this. And I'd always loved animals. So I was always thinking of being a vet in, in the background as well, um, ever since I was a, a tiny tot. So I think when I gave up on the notion of being a ballerina, then I, I really, really focused on, on veterinary. But um, I had to study hard. I had to study you know, hard at sciences. I would say of the subjects I did at school, I did find music and languages easier. Right, that's interesting. But I made the decision in my head, you know, I I do want to be a vet. I don't want to proceed with a more arty type of career. So I, I'll just get my head down and work at it. I think you would have made a great ballerina. <laughs> Probably too heavy now. Wow. I think, it, you know, but maybe, well, we'll come on to it. Who knows if you uh, include any of your ballerina dances in your in your services today. We'll find that out at the end. Um, but, but yeah, so, I mean, because this is interesting because obviously I've spoken to quite a few people now for, the, for this podcast and it comes up quite often that children, they say, do you know, I really wanted to be a vet and actually up, up until quite an older age. But then they start to realise what's involved with being a vet that is obviously all sides of the coin. But you, you, were determined so you really thought like hang on I'm going to study my sciences and then obviously you went off to university yes I did I got I got the grades for university to do veterinary wow. because it's a very very competitive course to get yeah. into there aren't very many universities that do it so you have to get A's in all your subjects yeah, wow. um, and obviously very very scientific based so a lot of people want to be vets but they they don't get in mm, but mm. um got the grades was very fortunate and I went to University College Dublin to do my veterinary degree and that's the only university that does veterinary medicine in Ireland. Wow okay well it's not just that you were lucky you obviously worked really really hard and I think that's amazing if you were more prone to the languages and the music you obviously really did have the drive you knew this is what I have to do. And then, so how did you find, uh, when you were there, how did you find that? Wonderful. Thank you. 
of all the sciences, I I think I was best. I know I was best at biology. And that is the one that is most applicable to veterinary medicine. Right. Um, chemistry and physics are, are obviously very, very useful as well. But that biology side of things um, definitely comes to the fore. Um, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And have I got this wrong, Jenny? Forgive me if this is a really silly thing to say, but do you start off with, with doctors as well? It's like a general medicine. Or were you solely with vets from the very beginning? We overlapped in the first year with uh, medics as well for some of the subjects. Right, right. So we did um, a little bit on biological sciences, some more on, on chemistry and medical physics. But the veterinary subjects, anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, it, it was just vets. So a little bit of overlap in the first year only. Um, and for most of the subjects, it was just vet students together. OK. And so how long were you at university for? Ah, now with all my qualifications, I've been there a very, very long time. The vet degree itself takes five or six years. Wow. Um, so at Dublin, it's a five-year course. But uh, then I went back to university to study for a PhD and also to do some specialist training in veterinary pathology, which I ultimately have ended up specialising in. So that was another four years. Wow. Uh, so that was nine years in total. Um, and then I stayed on at university for a couple of years as, as a lecturer in veterinary pathology. So I've been around academia for, yeah. for, for about 11 years. You obviously liked it there. I did, very, very much. <laughs> yeah, how amazing. It seems, strikes me that, that whatever you do, like being with the music or when you want to be a ballerina, when you do something, you obviously really sort of put yourself into it and you really sort of go for it. It's, you sound very passionate. I do, I do. And I think probably two reasons, very, very much encouraged from my parents and also a careers teacher at school told me that I couldn't be a vet or okay. not to consider being a vet because I was A, too short and B, I was a girl. So you wouldn't be allowed to say that sort of thing these days. How can you be too short to be a vet? <laughs> I mean, you weren't I think, doing yeah. giraffes. Yeah. I think she had idea that you need to be really, really big and strong and you don't. <laughs> you don't. Okay. It's, it is about technique. Okay. Okay. Um. I mean, saying that, I, I did go into small animal practice myself. That's um, initially what I wanted to work in. So I didn't do the farm farm animal uh, practice. But, you know, you do have to train in it at vet school. And as part of your extracurricular experience, you go out to farm practices. So, um yeah, there's, there's nothing you can't do as a, as a small girl. <laughs> as you're proving, as you're proving. So before, while you were still at university, were you, obviously a lot of the work was practical. So were you working in, in practices as well and you're working with animals? And how, how was, I mean, this is a really silly question, a really silly question, but, you know, was there ever, did you see it with other people? Again, because it's all very well, you say you want to do these things, but then when you actually have to do what you have to do with the animals and also not in such a, a happy environment as well did, did you see people really wobble and think hang on is this something I really really can do and did you ever wobble um 
I was so fired up that I wanted to be a vet. I don't think I wobbled, but definitely when you're in practice and you're as a student and you're assisting, you've always got the support of the main vet there. Um, and I think when you do any surgery for the first time or any medical procedure, you know, it's it's nerve wracking. It, it really is. You don't have the backup of, of someone there with you yeah. and you're on your own. <laughs> Are you? Do you have any assistance or anything? Well, when you're in practice, the main assistance will come from veterinary nurses, actually. When you're doing consultations, those people are absolutely amazing. And then helping you in, in surgery as well. Um, you get supervised by more senior vets in the practice when you start out. And then that, that gradually fades away on, until you're on your own. Okay. And obviously you're dealing with people as well at a highly, mm. highly emotional time with their pets, their life. You know, that must that must bring in a whole different lot of skills as well. Yes. And I think they do a lot more in training now about that, focusing on the, the people interactions. Because quite a few people will go into veterinary medicine because obviously they're interested in medicine, but they feel they'd rather work with animals and not people <laughs> but it is all about the people yeah it is all about the owners so you are throwing in a little bit at the deep end or or you were in my in my day certainly on on how to handle difficult situations mm. so you have to develop that that empathy yeah. with the client yeah. you know during your your career development yeah absolutely and again you know it's one of those I suppose it's it could be very easy that you um become less and less have less and less empathy if you're doing it every day but for the you know these these animals as we know we have a dog you know she is our world she absolutely is as it's the same with anyone with pets so you must you know that must be quite hard to always sort of put yourself in their shoes yes and it, it can go from one extreme to the other. You know, you get people who are, well, I'm totally attached to my pets. So I probably shouldn't say that, but you do get people that are absolutely madly passionate about the pets. And that can sometimes make it even more difficult to to treat them because they're putting a lot, a lot of pressure on you. Mm. Um, and maybe they they want to see one particular vet or they can become very demanding about the treatment they think that, the pet needs they're so obsessed with the pet that they maybe don't listen to, to the vet and take the right advice yeah and then of course there's the other extreme where you're brought in in cases where there has been cruelty oh. and you know that's yeah people don't care people can be awful oh. awful to animals yeah and that must be so upsetting still for you to see it is it's it's absolutely horrible I how can people do this to animals you know that that's the big question you know you must not have a general love of animals or humanity really no. to, to do that, that no. sort of thing no it's just wicked so because you because you went on to be if I can even I can't even say it Jenny a veterinary pathologist is yes. that right now tell so, me what is that so a veterinary pathologist is either working in kind of looking at dead animals so that would be post-mortem necropsies of a wide variety of species or we're looking at biopsy samples from living animals so I think when I say I'm a pathologist a lot of people say oh you're just working with dead animals but that 
that's not the whole part of the story. You're actually looking at biopsies quite often from tumour samples, from PETs. So you're having to make a diagnosis and you have a real impact on the treatment and prognosis of the individual pet by what you report out. And what made you go into that side of it? I find that aspect really interesting at university. Um, I think I'm the sort of person I like to get to the root cause of the problem. And sometimes in practice, we, we can't do that. We're limited to perhaps the amount of tests that we can perform for pets. Some pets aren't insured. So we would love to offer a whole range of tests, but it, it's just not possible. It's, it's just not affordable. Um, and I think when you, when you take this biopsy of a tumour or a lump or, a, or of a pet, at least you, you get to the bottom of what the, the problem is. And does that help you then with other animals? Can it help you, that kind of research? Yes, because, uh, you know, animals and humans are very much the, the same diseases. So some of the, the cancer treatments that have been developed for humans can be applied to animals and, and vice versa. So there are so, so many similarities, so many comparisons between the different animal species. Yeah. And do you ever get emotional with it, Jenny? We are dealing with, like you say, cruelly uh, treated animals. But do you, find, do you get very emotional? I think you have to try and, and switch off. You know, you definitely feel sorrow and compassion. But at the end of the day, you're doing a job. And you, particularly if you're involved in RSPCA cases, you have to use your, your best judgment, write a very objective description of what you see and what has happened. And that's the best possible thing that you can do for the animal. Yeah, I can see again the determination coming through. And, and are you? Do you work in a practice as such, or do you work with other people? Do you, how do, how do you operate? I'm in a laboratory at the moment, so right. I work for a big commercial company. So I manage veterinary pathologists. So I manage about thirty veterinary pathologists, and what we're absolutely dedicated to is reading biopsies and getting results out on on tumour analyses for pets, usually small animals. So we're getting samples in from mainly UK practices, but um, also other practices in in different parts of the world. Um, And yeah, so it is, it's now very much laboratory based, although I have had to move to a more home based environment all the microscopic samples that are produced for us to analyse now are actually scanned and I can look at them on a computer monitor. I don't need to be on site. I don't need to have people handing me samples or, or glass slides. It can all be directed to me on computer. So even in COVID, the job has, has gone on. And does it make it slightly dare I say, I don't mean easier, but does it make it easier to concentrate when you aren't dealing so much then with the relatives, with the, with the owners and the people, but you're really, you are really looking at the science and the, and the, you know, you can really focus on what is going on. Yes. You know, it must, you must, it must help you be able to really concentrate yes. on what you're doing. Yes, it does. So the main um, people that we are dealing with are the vets in practice now. And, you know, obviously it's very helpful if you have worked in practice as well, because you understand what the vets are going 
through still <laughs> in, yeah. and they're not, they're not having a good time at the moment I think in, in COVID I mean it's affected all but yeah. you know if you think of a relatively small practice if you have people who go off sick at mm-hmm. short notice or they have to you know collect their kids from from school because there's been a COVID outbreak very very difficult to yeah. manage yeah and, and they're struggling yeah I bet they are and it's a 24-hour you know, it's not a Monday nine to five profession, is it at all? No, no, that's right. That's and, right. And long you, hours. Yeah, I bet they are. And do you work long hours now? Do you work? Because obviously we're going to move on to your next chapter in just a second. But <laughs> but do you do you work full time doing this as such? Pretty much full time. I I have half day on Wednesday. Right. Wow. And and I dedicate that and probably most of my evenings to my other profession which we're going to come on to and let me just say so you're in Cheshire so do you work close by to you, do you... the the lab that I work for is actually in Yorkshire okay so when I was working um before COVID I would stay up there I would work in the lab um three days a week and work from home two days a week so I was always used to some sort of working at home but certainly not this amount of working from home no (laughs) I think we've all been uh, caught a little bit with that I absolutely do think so 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 slowly moving on then um to your next chapter now this all came about it was you were in your 40s and you had a diagnosis didn't you yes I did um at that point I was working as a uh still as a veterinary pathologist but I, I was working for a pharmaceutical company and I found a lump in my left breast. I didn't, well, I hoped, I hoped it wasn't anything to worry about. Um, and I did go to my GP, who, because I was, was young, also didn't think it was anything to worry about. But it uh, it didn't go away, so I had to go for the further tests. Um, and I got, um, yes, a diagnosis of breast cancer. And I find out that I would have to go through, well, I'd have to get the lump removed, my lymph nodes removed, and also do chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And it was just an absolute shock, absolutely yeah. incredible, because I was just, you know, so fired up in my career. I was always dashing around. Um, I've got a husband, by the way. I shouldn't leave poor Dave out of it. But <laughs> I was going to say, always... I must bring it to the fact that you are married to Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very supportive, Dave. But, you know, horrendously busy. Work, absolutely the the priority. And then to be given that diagnosis, it was, yeah, my, my world fell apart. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. And what a shock. And what stage was it, Jenny, if you don't mind me asking? Um, it it hadn't gone to my lymph node, so they called it a stage one. OK, OK. But very frightening. Very, very frightening. And very the, frightening. Yeah. And the kind of news, you know, that is uh, where like the world just stops, doesn't it? It suddenly stops turning and it's like, oh, my God, this is this is this is like serious stuff this is really serious stuff so you obviously you went into your treatment did were you able yes. to carry on working no no i i had to stop um i think that was important I had to concentrate on getting better and i i wasn't terribly well either i think people react differently hmm. um 
part of it, I think, was because I am a veterinary pathologist, so I I knew what was going on in my body when they were putting yeah. these drugs, and that made me feel ill in itself. Um, I wasn't a very good patient, I suppose. Um, not nice, not not nice at all. But I I definitely stopped my work for for nine months okay okay so you were just at home and with Dave um and at this stage where and obviously you're feeling terribly poorly like you say sometimes too much knowledge is is a a bad thing at times um and I can imagine as well like how we're saying that you're sort of so passionate about everything you must have felt so frustrated Mm -hmm. so frustrated absolutely very Um, very frustrated and and is this where you started to think that you wanted to do something else was it at this stage or was it was it after it was it was during my illness um it just really brought it home to me of the importance of other things in your life you know family friends little things because when you don't have your health there's so little that you can do um, and as we said, I did come from a churchy background. I always, you know, went to church regularly with my parents as a child because my father was a church organist. Um, I went along, you know, I went through confirmation. Yeah, yeah, I kind of believed what it, what it was all about. But then I went to university and, you know, there were other interesting things to be doing at the weekend. Quite right. Um, that age yeah and then after university I I did keep returning to church intermittently uh and the village that I live in now in in Cheshire I was attached to that church I didn't go particularly frequently but but I was attached and it was always there at, at the back of my mind and they were very good to me when I was ill um, and my my vicar at the church, he gave me, it's called the liturgical calendar, and it lays out every day that there are specified Bible readings, and you can you can work through those um, morning, evening, afternoon. So I used to do the three the three readings every day. I found it really really helped me because I needed something to get up for when I wasn't feeling very well mm-hmm. and it it just kept kind of filtering through to me that, that that there was more to life and I should be doing more for other people um not just thinking about myself thinking about work and it felt like a calling to do something in the church uh, very, very strange because I never would have thought that I would go on to be a priest. No. So I kept thinking, well, maybe it's to be in the church choir. You know, maybe it's to do more Bible readings. Maybe it's to be what we have. Um, we have lay readers. So um, I enrolled in a course called Foundations for Ministry at Chester University. So this was, oh, about two years after my diagnosis. And um, that's really there to help you explore if you are having a vocation and if you're being called to something. Uh, And it was towards the end of that course that we had a speaker and he was what is called a minister in secular employment. So he was involved in a school. He was teacher and he had his normal job 
if you like, but he was also a priest. And it was like this light bulb went off in my head because I've been wrestling with this. I feel I've been called to do something in the church, but I've obviously spent a lot of time in training doing this veterinary pathology. What a waste that would be to, to give all that up. And I decided to go on and explore that further. Um, and it, it takes quite a long time. You have to discuss it with various people in, in your diocese and you go to an external advisory panel as well. Um, so I was accepted. I was accepted ultimately to study um, for for the priesthood. And yeah, it's been tough. I think people don't understand minister and secular employment. There are not very many ministers in secular employment. So people always have this image of the priest is, is in the church, yeah. reaching out to the parish. And again, I, I always do things with great passion. And I'm absolutely passionate that the church has to do more outside the church because I feel life has moved on. So many people don't go to church. You know, you're not getting taught about Christianity, for example, in schools as much. You know, why would people cross that church door to find out what's going on? So I'm really, really pleased that I have kept a normal job, if you like. And within that normal job, people know that I am also a priest. So for many of them, I will probably be the only priest they will come across, but I'm, I'm accessible. I'm there and, and they can ask me questions about anything, really. Mm. So it, it's not like crossing the threshold and going into church. Awesome. I mean, there's, I've got so much to ask you. I mean, it's it's just amazing. You're right, because you have an image of a priest that, dare I say it, an older man behind a curtain and you go in and you chat, you know, you might do your confession. And if if you're not part of that world, you wouldn't. You wouldn't no. know. You wouldn't know at all. Um, but so going back, so how long did you have to study for, and what did you have to do to actually become officially a priest? It was three years part time, wow. on top of that first year where I was exploring okay. the vocation and the foundations of ministry course. Um, now, after I decided, I think this is Ministry of Secular Employment. Then it was another. Oh, it was another two or three years, actually, before I got to the point of get onto the, the course. Um, and then I didn't did the find course. it a particularly useful process, I've, I've got to say, because I'm I was very, very different. I was female. I wanted to work in the secular environment. And I think the people assessing me didn't understand what I was talking about. I was asked questions like, well, how will you baptize in a laboratory? And it was like, no, that is not what this ministry is about. It is a presence, it is a pastoral presence within that community. So I had to, yeah, it took a while. It took a while to get through and, and for people to to understand that was what the ministry was about. I still think people don't completely understand it. No, I, was I talking, don't. If I'm I honest, talking, I don't. <laughs> and I was speaking to somebody the, the other evening and he is a vet and he's also a priest. Wow. Um, and he is what's called a pioneer minister. So he's a chaplain to the veterinary community okay. in the Church right. of, of Scotland. So, yeah, he, car he 
is going to carve out more time for myself with the veterinary community as as a chaplain. So yeah. it's it is more akin to what I'm doing, but I think he feels the same precious as me as that you're not you're not doing parish ministry so often the parish ministers don't actually understand what you're doing and there's also a perception in some quarters that you're um, a second class minister because you're not a full-time minister you're doing a job and you're just you know fitting in this priest thing around everything else when in actual fact I'm a priest absolutely all the time all the time yeah so were you actually thinking have i got this right that you would do baptisms in your laboratory no no you no would never convert you wouldn't but is that what people thought no. that they're like hang yes. on you're either right you're either that jenny or you're this and you're here full time <laughs> and you're there in the afternoons and you're there for whatever the parish needs but you you know that's that's what you're saying people couldn't get your head round that you could be a full-time a veterinary pathologist at the same time to be just as a committed priest. Yes, yes, that's right. And, you know, it depends on the environment that, that you're placed in. Uh, and I spent some time at Liverpool Airport working with the chaplain there. And that's a job where you're not running around evangelising to people and doing baptisms and confirmations. You are a visible presence in that workplace and you are helping people. And yeah. it's very much a pastoral role. I mean, that that is the first, first bit of it for me. You know, I say I'm a Christian, I'm a priest. I have to live out my life like that in the workplace. So, you know, people, people will watch me and... You know, just decisions that I make in the workplace, I'm very, very conscious. They know I'm a priest and they will yeah. be looking at, at the way I react. Yeah. And what you're doing in your day with dealing with animals who have died, you know, you're, it's quite... A com is it... Well, no, you tell me, is it conflicting or is it not conflicting? Because you actually can use a lot of your priest values to deal with what you're dealing with in, in your day job. I think bring my priestly things to management of people I would hope I do it in that way um, and that can be a tricky balance because obviously I manage people so there are lines that people can't cross but yet I'm I, I want to act in a pastoral way so I have to support people but it's always you know within within the constraints of of the company and and that's absolutely fine but you know, I can I can speak out about things, can't I? You know, yeah. I I think we need to look after the environment more. So if there are, you know, the company I work for is is pretty green, but if there's there's something I feel that they should perhaps consider, I I won't be backward. I I will suggest that. But as I, I mean, the minister on secular employment, you have to do your job. So nobody is saying to me. Jenny, you know, you, you work nine until six and you can do two hours of priestly stuff. You know, it's nine to six. I'm doing my job. But in that time, people may approach me about things. They may make a phone call. They may, may email me outside of work hours. So it's got to be fitted outside of work hours. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wants to spend an hour with me over a coffee, I might not be able to do it. Or if I do do it and I did it in work hours, I have to make the time up. I see, I see. But you obviously have people... And do you find you do stand up for things? And do you think 
you are regarded in a slightly different way because they know that you are a priest as opposed to just another member of staff? Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> I think when I was on site more, I, I would go in and I'd wear my, my dog collar. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> but the other thing is, the really, really exciting thing about COVID for me and something I wouldn't have done but for COVID was to set up this virtual ministry mm. as as the reverend vet. So I wanted to reach out to people in my workplace, essentially. You know, I, I didn't want to disappear. No. So I set myself up as a reverend vet on, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And, um, you know, I, ha- I have some help with all that, but it's exploded. It's just massive. <laughs> yeah. I've now got, I think, 2000, nearly 2,200 followers. So that is a lot more than your average church. Yeah. So that's why I would suggest to the church that, you know, people that are doing this sort of work, this isn't second class ministry. This is really getting out there. It's getting into the real nitty gritty. Yeah. yeah. And even if only 10% of people yeah. you know are fully engaged with what I'm doing well that's still 200 people it's still growing because on the on the daily basis so you tend so you work at the weekends and in evenings so you do do weddings you do christenings funerals you do all the usual what you would do over the weekend and well, is that right and then in the evenings as well um I can do weddings I can do funerals and I can do baptisms right I have to fit it around work Weddings are easier to do because they are usually on on Saturdays. And I also have to be very careful that I don't do too much either. Yeah. Um, Because Monday to Friday, I'm I'm working. Yeah. So I can't occupy my entire weekend with, with parish stuff. No. So would you perhaps do a wedding on a Saturday in normal times and perhaps have a Sunday off? Definitely, yeah. definitely. I mean, I do two or three services a month in, in the local church. Do you like doing but weddings? I, I do. I love doing weddings. Yeah. They're very, very joyful occasions. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I very much enjoy those. Yes. And <laughs> Yeah, especially after, again, with your day job and the pressures that, that, that comes with that and what you've seen and you must have seen and dealt with so many awful sides of that side of thing. But then to work in something and maybe even a, a baptism as well, that must be lovely because you're seeing all aspects of life, aren't you? Yes. Yes, and, and that's a great honour, you know, to be involved with people in, in all those different stages. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's interesting because in my day job, I work as a, as a journalist and we did some filming the other day in this gorgeous church in Wiltshire in a little place. It was near Box. And it was interesting. We were talking there really like what you're saying, that um, these churches are incredible, but it has become all very sort of it's not and no offence, but it's not sort of kept up to, to date. But actually, people are becoming more and more spiritual, shall we say. And even if it's not tied to an actual religion, it's values yeah. and beliefs. And so back in, and don't let me go because I don't know like you know, but, um, you know, with religions, it was such a, you know, it was such a subject. You didn't talk about it, but it felt like when my conversation with them, it's more a case of, look, you live in a community, we have our ups and downs and we sort of come together. And it, it's not necessarily because there's a message and the people who are, the, the atheists among us is oh they're just trying to brainwash us it's it's not like that it, and it doesn't have to be like that but these are wonderful parts of the community with all this history that can bring people together if it's done in a more 
approachable way in today's world. Yes, and it's it's got to be relevant, doesn't it? Yeah, well. it does. It's got to be really, really relevant. So, I mean, when I put out stuff virtually, yes, I'm doing like little thoughts for the day, and I, I'm just trying to make <coughs> the the Bible readings, I suppose, more accessible. You know, yeah, and we're we're called to. I mean, that's the greatest commandment: love your neighbour as yourself. I think a lot of problems in the world wouldn't be there if if everybody yeah. <laughs> thought sort of life in in that way. Yeah, yeah. And actually, when you do look at some of these things, it's quite it's fascinating, isn't it? Because we always think everyone always thinks they're the people to go through it for the first time. But when you look back in history and ancient, I mean, kind of it, you can apply quite a lot of it. And they they were doing it then. You know, the people who had worked yes. it out, they were already talking about it then. And it's just now it's like, oh, hang on, that's revolutionary. But it's not. It's the same <laughs> values that was that they were talking about back then. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I'm on board, Jenny. I'm on board. Don't even get me started on the universe. <laughs> I re- I recently <laughs> discovered, like, looking for signs in the universe, and I thought, oh, that doesn't work. And I did, and I, oh my goodness, it did, it did. So I was like, wow. Even my husband did it, and he was like, oh my goodness, it worked. And this is what's what is this? What is this? But anyway, that's a whole other matter. So, um, moving on then, Jenny, to be continued. What would you like to do next? And presumably, you do want to sort of just carry this on and grow, like you're saying the reverend vet yes i do i think that's got a huge potential to grow so the involvement that i may have in in the parish in the parish church itself may decline so i uh, i am thinking about um this virtual ministry is is it is it what the church of england would actually define as pioneer right ministry right and that that's a unique ministry where you're reaching out to people that, that the church can't otherwise reach. So I would think that probably is what I'm doing. Yeah. But um, in that ministry, you're not licensed to a church necessarily. Right. So you're doing your own ministry and perhaps, you, you know, you help out other churches. Um, so, yeah, that, that's quite a difficult thing to get my head around because I do like aspects of the parish ministry. But, you know, you can't do everything. No, you're I, getting I, a wider reach from what you're doing. Yes. And again, it's and, and do you think people ha- perhaps find it less daunting than going into a church when it's more sort of overlying it's sort of more philosophies and, and values and that kind of thing? Do you think people find that they can connect with that a little bit more? Yes, yes, definitely. And, you know, they've got time to think about things as well. Yeah. Um, and I do want to do more live streaming uh, and podcasts, for example. Though, you know, again, people will be able to listen to those in their own time and uh, ponder them. Yeah. Or, you know, when you do Zoom meetings, you know, you can switch your camera off. So it's it's just less less of a personal atmosphere, I suppose, if you just want to sit back and listen and not participate so much that it's a good way to do it and and in your community though going back to that how do people respond to you knowing what you do for a day job <laughs> this is in my my virtual community well in both actually both. in both how 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 do you find people find it i think people are very very interested i thought some people would be really put off especially by by the dog collar no, people people ask me questions. And I think in the virtual community as well, people are interested in, in animals. I actually have a pet prayer group as well. Okay. So I can set up prayers for, for pets that are ill or pets that have passed away because, you know, they're very, very special 
yeah. creatures, aren't they? Oh, they really are. So um, that gets people thinking yeah. about faith as well. Maybe maybe they just log on to my site because they like animal pictures, but there is something deeper there. I suppose that's what I'm trying to share with people. There is something deeper. There is something more meaningful going on. Yeah. And I would like to introduce them yeah. to that. But it's going to happen very, very slowly and I'm going to have to, you know, use very, very contemporary language and images to get that across. It's interesting because I'm a big fan and I know, um, you know, I've got some good friends who equally are big fans of a gentleman called Jay Shetty, who you may have come across, who wrote his book, Think Like a Monk. So he was actually a monk. And then he tries. So he now um, uses the monk philosophies in daily life. And that I find fascinating because I've, I've um, well, I listen to him on the, read the book. Um, but also I listen to his podcast and it kind of I you learn. And again, this is where it goes back. It is their ancient and their philosophies and so actually, even if you perhaps don't necessarily want to become a Buddhist, you can. It's like actually the way they live their lives, and that's actually a really nice way to live. So like mm-hmm. it, it like brings a bit of deeper comfort knowing that this is kind of behaviour that's been going on for s- centuries and centuries, and they they were very wise, and this is the wisdom's passed down. Um, and it just, especially in today's world where it feels so out of control, it kind of just yeah. it just yeah. you're not joining a dare I say it's not like you're joining a cult or you know it's nothing like that it's just actually if you it's a it's but it's a set of beliefs that like you say give a much deeper comfort to life yes and as you say it's been going on for thousands millions millions of years since man's subconsciousness he's wanted to get in touch with a god hasn't he yeah yeah we need something I mean we all sometimes these days you think Flipping heck, you need something else. That's why I started asking for signs from the universe. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I asked to see a pink car and I saw five. I saw five. Um, oh, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. Even today, my son said, look, mum, there's a pink car. I said, look, there it is. Um, so <laughs> it's a sign. Um, and obviously, I must just say, Dave, he's obviously very supportive of all of this because he's always been very supportive of you with everything. He has. He has. And is his work anything similar to yours? He originally trained as a physicist, but right. he is now a practice manager in a GP practice okay. in Liverpool. Okay. Oh, another next chapter too. <laughs> yes. So he's he's done several different things. Yeah. Physics, yes. health and safety management, IT, and now GP practice management. Very good. But yes, he's very, very supportive of me and I couldn't do what I do without Dave I think it's fair to say I'm pretty useless around the house I'm an absolute terrible terrible cook Um, (laughs) and Dave enjoys cooking well that's okay you're pretty passionate you've done very well with many other things Jenny so I think you can be allowed off the of the cooking so yes actually I mean we're moving on then to the acknowledgements you said um yeah and I asked you know who would you like to thank who has helped you along the way because it really is amazing the two the two roles that you're you're doing at the moment and you said you're obviously your husband and friends you know how have your friends been in all of this very good very good very interested uh not all my friends are Christians either um most of them are not Christians, actually, which I think is is very interesting. I think a lot of priests have predominantly Christian friends, but I think that's narrowing down your perspective. So this this opens up lots of lots of interesting conversations. I think people were just worried when when I went on to study for the priesthood that I would be taking on 
too much and yeah it was a lot to do it was a lot to do yeah. but um I have to be quite strict with my time are you are you especially when you'd been poorly as well I mean it was a big thing to do after a lot of people decide to scale back but so are you quite disciplined with your time yes yes I definitely make time you know Friday evening that is definitely a night that I will not be doing any ministerial work good unless it's an absolute emergency yeah. well, let Dave and, um, cook a good dinner yeah yeah and I have to uh have have the odd Sunday off as mm. well and we have to go away and do something mm. nice can, can I just ask Jenny on this and um, feel free to say no but you know how do you react if somebody is very you know is an atheist and is very very like no there's no such thing as God you know, how do you cope with that how do you deal with that it's very hard I mean I, I ask them for proof you know proof that they can prove that that there is no god um and then you get into this kind of stalemate conversation don't you <laughs> that well i you can't prove that there is a god and you can't prove that there is not a god i think a lot of it goes down to personal experience as well because i'm a scientist remember so i can only get i suppose part of the way and rationalizing it in a you know a truly rational way you, you you will never prove it but you have to have faith uh you know and look at the his, historical data that's there as well i mean jesus was only you know it was only two thousand years ago that's not, not a long time past is it mm. um and it, it all seems pretty accurate but feelings yeah like you say coincidences people just drop into your life and also as a scientist particularly looking at things at a microscopic level the complexity of the cell and organisms it is unbelievable you've got people looking at the complexity on a macro scale universe and then I'm looking at it at a very cellular level and I would find that very hard to believe that there was, there was nothing behind that um because of the beauty and the complexity of it. Yeah. I mean, even the science of how a baby, you know, the, the odds against an actual baby being formed and being born, it's like, I, you all know better than I, but it's, you know, it's one of the most amazing things you'll ever do is be born because it's, you're, it's against, you're against the odds, aren't you? Yes. Yes. And why, why are we looking for something spiritually? I always think there must be something there. You know, we, we get thirsty and we reach out for water. We get hungry. We reach out for food. We we want something spiritual. We're, we're reaching out. There must be something out there that, that's driving it. I don't think it's man-made that people are just thinking, oh, you know, I want to think that there's something at the end of the day. Therefore, I'm making up this this whole story. Um, I don't believe it. And I, I think the fact that there are many, many different faiths as well also points to the fact that there there is something. <laughs> you know, so many people have, have come to this point from, you know, from different perspectives. Yeah. And I did see those five pink cars, Jenny, on the, you know, I, I thought I'd, I've got to say I did. <laughs> and things happen. I mean, I'm very, like I say, I'm very, very scientific and probably I need to have things that, just kind of blew me away and I think you know ju just as one one example before I went for my assessment at the the bishop's advisory panel I went on retreat uh to um a retreat house in Binos in North Wales beautiful 
place for, for a silent retreat. And I walked into the beautiful terraced garden evening. Um, and I just thought, I'm just going to flick open my Bible and, and see what it says. And this passage from Isaiah was there and it said, no matter if you walk through the flames, I will be with you. And as I was reading that, the sun was setting and I was bathed in this, what appeared like a red fire. Amazing. Amazing. That's and just, yeah. some things happen like that. Yeah. And could it could have been a coincidence, but yeah. I just think sometimes you get a little window opening onto something yeah. else. It happens at that exact time. And also, exactly. regardless, like you say, you're a scientist and you're okay, somebody listen to say, oh, well, you know, you'll always hear that kind of voice. But if in that moment as well, that gave you, this is what we're saying, isn't it? It gave you comfort, just made you think, hang on, yeah, okay, there's something a bit more depth. It's not this dreadful sometimes that we see on the news, dare I say, even though I'm a journalist, but, you know, there's actually this depth of something, whatever that may be, whatever it, whatever you want to call it, well, that's lovely, isn't it? I mean, that's a really, when you were going into the depths of what you were, to, to think that, that must have been like a, a gigantic comfort blanket for you. Yes, it was, it was, and it really, yeah, that, that started it all off thinking about there's more, there's just more to life yeah. than, than this, yeah. but life's still hard. Uh, and I think that that's the other thing, you know, being in, in the secular world and being more realistic. Easter, we're celebrating the resurrection. Everything's fine. Everything's hunky-dory. We're all happy. It's wonderful. And life isn't like that. And I think it's so important that we are rooted in, in the real world and, and the realities yeah. and not sending out. It, it's, a, it's a lovely message as Christianity, but that doesn't make life easy. And no, life is hard. It is. And it puts more pressure on, isn't it? it? Even the whole thing about keeping positive all the time. Sometimes it's just exhausting to keep trying to be positive. Um, but it, but also, I think I'm only, uh, God, I could talk to you about this all day, but I'm only kind of working this out that actually you can feel happy and sad at the same time, you can find joy and lovely moments at the same time. Mm -hmm. You actually feel, you know, quite depths of pain, dare I say. And, and and it can sit side by side, but that is life, isn't it? You can't always keep waiting for it's, it to be to be full of joy. No, no. It's it's a mixture, isn't it? Um, yeah. And my father's no longer with us. And he, obviously, he was very musical. He was a musician, so... I hear lovely music and that gives me a lot of joy, but there's also sadness in there yeah. because quite often it was piece he liked or he played. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. the two things are, are always there playing against each other. The rich tapestry, Jenny, the rich tapestry. Rich tapestry indeed. And, and indeed. In, so yes, yeah, so just because you did also say to thank your spiritual director and your training incumbent. So spiritual director, that is someone that I go and talk to. She is a priest and sometimes things happen and you just need to bounce ideas off another person who is very separate to your life and they can help you tease through these difficult situations from, from a different perspective. So that that is very, very helpful. Uh, and then the training incumbent, that that is the vicar at my church right. so he's a boss in the church yeah. <laughs> and I, I I'm a curate so yes he, he's been very supportive in my ministry yeah yeah well it's a very very sort of forward way of thinking and hopefully in the you know it sounds like completely in the right direction what we all 
all do need. Um, so to finish off, I mean, look, Jenny, there's nobody better to ask than you because, you know, you've been through it all, haven't you? You see what happens with the animals. You can you see the human nature there with the passion, the love, the cruelty, what you went through with your diagnosis. It was very frightening for you. And then obviously now what you do um, as, a, as a priest you know, what is your advice if someone's listening to this on different levels? You know, first of all, on a, on a bigger level, should we say that if they're, you know, they're just not really feeling happy, they haven't, they haven't found their purpose, they're not really, they, they just got this, you know, underlying sadness that, do you know what, is this it? Is there more to life? You know, what, there's something wrong and I don't know what it is. What would you say, first of all, and so that's a big question, but what would you say to that person who can't work out what's wrong, but they know something is? I think they need to explore explore the issues. I mean, if it is something spiritual, well, then there are, you know, people that you can go and talk to and and trust, or or email, or go on their website, for example. Not not promoting myself. Um, plenty of people to speak to about spirituality. If you if you're sad because you feel you haven't. Um, done enough in your life I think I think I get a lot of that at the moment actually mm. I suppose it's the age I am but people are kind of you know the, what do they call it this this midlife crisis mm. I feel I haven't done it done enough with with my life I think you do need to sit down and, and talk with somebody and say what you've done because you'll find most people have actually done an awful lot in their lives that that they don't don't realize but if you are thinking as well of of doing something different um you know, looking at a next chapter in your life, I would say, do do take the plunge and go for it. Um, I've I've been knocked back many times, you know, from being told that I couldn't be a vet, you know, and you know my ministry not being understood. But if you feel genuinely you want to try something and and do it, you you have to you have to take the plunge. Because you see how short life is, don't you? You really do. Yes. I think it's very important to to stay in the moment as well. Um, not not look too far ahead. You do you do have to do some planning, of course, but but do try and stay in the moment. Um, and I always use this really helpful image when people say, "Are you worried about dying?" And I think, well, I'm not worried about being dead. I worry sometimes about the process, but. I want at that moment to pretend, you know, if I'm standing on the top of a mountain and I'm looking down around me and surveying what I've done. And I want to know as I look out that I did what I could. I did what I could. As few regrets as possible. Yeah. And then I think I can happily, you know, pack my bags and leave this world. But we all carry baggage and troubles, and my life by by no means is is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but at least if um, we can go for what we really want want to do, I suppose it's just about being honest, isn't it? What you you only you know what you really want to do, and also I think what's fascinating is a conversation I've had with a couple of people recently because obviously I talk a lot about next chapters going into sort of very creative or you know these kind of building your own business. But actually, what you've done is you've gone into, my goodness, I mean, to become a, a priest, this is an ancient, you know, you, this is a profession that's been going for a very, very long time. Um, and you've approached it in a different, with a different mentality. And in a sense as well, 
you did this with with your veterinary work and the way you've become the priest alongside that so actually even if you're within a career and on a career path and you feel a bit stuck and that actually if you really think what do I want to do here I'm guessing you would suggest that people do that and then try and maybe find your own different way even with a very very established career profession yes yes definitely and you don't have to give up your established career necessarily or whatever you want to look into see if there are ways that you can fit fit that around around your job Um, and the good thing about about the piece two training now is that it's offered part-time and you can do it in the evening so you don't have to go off to theological college to do that anymore yeah no absolutely and before we go Jane I do just have to ask this are you ever tempted to become a ballerina again in one of your services <laughs> I mean could you do this yeah that's that, that's right I might uh, do a flash dance like uh, I can see it some uh, <laughs> the reverend some Betts. famous reference yes yes, yes. the rapping or whatever reverend Betts <laughs> or ballerina I can see it yeah, that's a, that's a new way to attract people, isn't it? Yeah, well, look, you can, you know, you had the idea here first, I just want to say, <laughs> another next chapter has been born. Maybe, that's right. <laughs> Reverend Jenny McKay, thank you so much for being such a fascinating and interesting guest on the next chapter. I've been, I mean, what a lovely way to spend an hour with you. Thank you so, so much. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it as well, Ellie. <laughs> I can't deny it. I loved that. I could have carried on chatting to Jenny all day. I hope you felt the same. I mean, she's just doing it, isn't she? She's singing or dancing to her own tune. Jenny decides what she wants to do and no matter what she's told, she finds a way of doing it her way. I took from that, you have to be honest, but also, and this is really important, it's so true what Jenny says, if you feel you haven't done enough in your life, well have a look at what you have done and you'll probably find you've done much more than you realise. And that's whether you want to start a next chapter or not. Now, to find out more about Jenny's brilliant work, which is also lots of fun, you can find her at thereverendvet.co.uk. You can, of course, hear more about me and my latest books at eddiebarkerwrites.com. And if you could rate and review this episode, well, then that would be marvellous and may even help someone else discover their next chapter too. But whatever you're thinking or pondering, remember, keep singing to your own tune. Jenny thinks you can do it, and I do too. Speak soon.